Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. This is one of the reasons why I love this woman. I just know now that you're going to say something embarrassing about me. No, I'm and not. And this is... No. This is just... Cat walked into the bedroom and there was a paper bag on the floor in the bedroom. And out of the corner of her eye... Because we're hoarders. <laughs> well, it, it's it bordering. Like, bordering on that, like we yes. have a real problem. Right, right. So she sees this paper bag out of the corner of her eye and uh, she's doing something else. She thinks it's a dog, so she reaches down and pat it, even though all of our dogs were accounted for. <laughs> I was so disappointed that it was not a dog. <laughs> it was just, I didn't even think about it. It was just a subconscious, like, I'm going to I'm gonna touch that dog uh-huh. kind of moment. You're always looking for dogs. I, even if there's where there an are... opportunity for me to touch a dog, <laughs> I won't touch it. Even even if no dogs are in the, in the vicinity. Give me the pets. Let me pet your dog. Let me touch your imaginary dog. So in order to make my, my beautiful bride's life better, I've strategically placed half-empty paper bags around the house. <laughs> So that she can stop and pet them. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Uh, Speaking of which, I think it's about time to make a trip to the hardware store because there's always dogs there. That's true. That's true. They do allow dogs Mm. at the hardware store. (laughs) So you go first this week. Excellent. What you got for me? Oh, I loved that. I was was mixing it up a little bit. I loved the way it went up and then down. It's like I zigged when you thought I was going to zag. Absolutely. Right. I wanted to talk today about the Kryptos sculpture. Jim Sanborn's Kryptos sculpture was unveiled at the CIA in November of 1990. And it was a tribute to cryptography, the analyzing and deciphering of codes written in numbers, letters, and symbols. And the sculpture has been stomping code breakers ever since. All right. When you said crypto sculpture i immediately pictured bigfoot like the bigfoot that you can buy in sky mall <laughs> <laughs> yes 
<laughs> yes. This is why we started the podcast was so that I could make some extra money to buy Bigfoot sculptures. It's part of, it's on my vision board. Right. That and the cannon that will eventually shoot out your ashes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the sculpture is comprised of four large copper plates with other elements consisting of water, wood, plants, uh, red and green granite, white quartz, and petrified wood. So there's a photo of Cryptos, which appears on the CIA's website. It describes it as a piece of petrified wood supported by large S-shaped copper screen that looks like a piece of paper coming out of like a printer. Okay. And then on that quote unquote paper, it's not paper, it's copper, but on that uh, are characters. And they're all found within the 26 letters of the Latin alphabet, along with question marks. And they're cut out of the copper plates. And the main sculpture contains four separate messages. In addition to the main part of the sculpture, the the big chunk that we just talked about, uh, Sanborn also placed other pieces of art on the CIA grounds, such as uh, large granite slabs with uh, sandwiched copper sheets outside the entrance to the new headquarters building, uh, several Morse codes, Messages are found on those sheets, and one of the stone slabs has an engraving of a compass rose pointing to a lodestone. Other elements include a landscaped garden area with a fish pond and wooden benches and a reflecting pool and some other pieces of stone, including a triangle-shaped black stone slab. So this is all part of the puzzle, the code? It is. I would think it should be assumed so. Okay. Many factors are going into this piece and this puzzle. So it makes sense to me that it wouldn't be broken up into bits and pieces all over and that it that he was just like, oh, and also I'll do some nice benches so people can sit down. <laughs> like, I just, that just doesn't vibe right with me. Unless it's a distraction. And it could be because this guy is known for that kind of shenaniganery if you will. That crypto shenaniganery. Sanborn received his commission from the CIA, and at that point, he had no experience in codes. He is a self-professed math numbskull. So he teamed up with a CIA cryptographer named Ed Scheid. Now, there's not a lot of information that I can find about why the CIA picked this particular artist, about what went into the design of this particular piece, about uh, why they wanted this piece, if they asked for it to be like this, or if he just decided it was going to be like this, I cannot find this information. So I don't know if it's kept a secret on purpose, but I know that a lot of the mystery surrounding this sculpture is that you can't just go and see it. It's on CIA headquarters. Hmm. So there's limited access to it, which I think has led to kind of the mystery of it all. This sounds like the making of a Nicolas Cage film. Or a film adapted from a Dan Brown novel. Mm -hmm. That too. The Da Vinci Code does feature on its hardcover artwork a piece of this piece of art. So you can see a part of it Hmm. on that cover. And there's also another Dan Brown book that includes a chapter on this this whole mystery. Sanborn borrowed uh, from several different types of cryptology to create this 
piece, including the French cryptographer Blaise de Verrien. And um, he also, <laughs> the ciphertext on the left-hand side of the sculpture, uh, which is seen from the courtyard, contains 869 characters in total. Uh, that's 865 characters with four question marks. And in April of 2006, Sanborn released information stating that a letter was omitted from that side of the cryptos. And that was for aesthetic reasons, (laughs) which I think is really unfair. That is very unfair. (laughs) What are you thinking? There are also three misspelled words in the plain text of the deciphered three passages, which Sanborn has said were intentional. So if words are misspelled intentionally, is that part of the riddle or is that to try to throw someone off from being able to decipher it in the first place? Like what's going on here? If I were to create a code, they would have built in misspelled words just because I can't spell. Yeah, well, that's fair. Me too. Sanborn has said that the phrase in itself is a riddle. It's going to lead to something else. So even when the whole thing is decoded, it's still a mystery because you'll need to use those decoded messages to figure out the riddle. So uh, that's where I think maybe the other pieces on the property might come into play. I'm not sure. The first person to announce publicly that he had solved the first three passages of the cryptos was Jim Gilligley, who is a computer scientist from Southern California. And uh, he used a computer and revealed his solutions in 1999. It was right after that that the CIA revealed that they had a guy who had actually already done it. Oh, um, well, that's anticlimactic. Yeah. They should have let us know that well, long yeah. before. No public announcement was made until July of 1999. But then uh, they... they revealed that a CIA analyst had been working on his own time and he had solved the lion's share of it. So that that first three passages. The NSA also claimed that some of their employees had solved the same three passages, but they wouldn't talk about that until 2000. And then it was learned that their team had solved the first three sections in 92. Why are they keeping it secret? I don't know. Maybe they, they hoped that by keeping it secret, it would lead to the solution of the fourth passage and they could solve it all without having to tell anyone else. It's like when you hold all your cards until the end of that game. That's one or the other of gin or gin rummy. And I never remember which one is which. <laughs> anyway, the solution of passage one. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Between subtle shading and the absence of light lies the nuance of illusion. What? It's illusion, but with a Q in there. Oh. Illusion. That's how I imagine it would be pronounced. Sure. Solution of passage two. It was totally invisible. How's that possible? They used the Earth's magnetic field, X. The information was gathered and transmitted underground. Instead of underground, it's two U's instead of O-U-N-D. To an unknown location. X, does Langley know about this? Question mark. They Mm. should. It's buried out there somewhere. X. Who knows the exact location? Only WW. This was his last message. X. 38 degrees, 57 minutes, 6.5 seconds, north, 
77 degrees, 8 minutes, 44 seconds west, X, layer 2. So do those coordinates line up with Langley Air Force Base? No. Hmm. Uh, uh, not that I know of. Bummer. It wasn't made, you know. Because Langley, isn't that where the, after Roswell, they sent the alien bodies? Allegedly. Langley is also the last name of a character on a show, and I can't remember which one it is. It's probably not where they sent it. Dang it. Okay. And passage number three. Slowly, desperately, slowly, the remains of passage debris that encumbered the lower part of the doorway was removed. With trembling hands, I made a tiny breach in the upper left-hand corner, and then widening the hole a little, I inserted the candle and peered in. The hot air escaping from the chamber caused the flame to flicker, but presently details of the room within emerged from the mist. X. Can you see anything? Q. Question mark. Now, you might recognize that phrase. It is a paraphrased quotation from Howard Carter's discovery. Of Tutankhamun. Yes. There's an, there's an onk in there, guys. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, and it's not exact, but it's, I mean, essentially, he, yeah, you know, right. no. I peered in. What do, I, what do you see? Uh, things, wonderful things. Except in the field notes from that excavation, it seems like it may have been misquoted. It sounds like uh, originally the quote was, holy fucking shit. <laughs> and they had to change it for history. Probably. It looks like it might have been, it is wonderful rather than wonderful things. Okay. Anyway, that's not related to, it doesn't matter. Okay. In 2006, Sam Bourne said that he made an error in the sculpture <laughs> by omitting an S in the ciphertext, an X in the plain text, and he confirmed that the last passage of the plain text was West X Layer 2 and not Westy Bitty Rose. Okay. So <laughs> okay. That's a big difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. There have been clues given to us by Sanborn about how to solve this fourth part of the riddle. In November 2010, Sanborn released a clue revealing that six of the last 96 letters, when decrypted, spell the word Berlin. Hmm. And many took that as a reference to the Berlin Wall because this was being made during the time of the Berlin Wall being sure. disassembled. 1990, right? Wasn't that when it came down? I think it was 89, 90. 89, 90, yeah. Yeah. The second clue came in honor of the 25th anniversary of the Berlin Wall's demise and the artist's 69th birthday. So that was in 2014. And Sanborn revealed a new clue. He told the New York Times that the letters MZFPK, the 70th through the 74th letters in the passage for, became clock. After decryption. Now, Berlin clock. Sanborn told Wired magazine that he's always been fascinated by Berlin's many clocks. And there's one clock in particular that has always intrigued him. It's known as the Berlin set theory clock. It was designed in the 1970s by an inventor, Dieter Binninger, and it displays the time through illuminated colored blocks rather than numbers. 
So it requires the viewer to calculate the time based on this scheme. So like a certain number of blocks in the first row might be lit up and a certain number of blocks might be lit up in the second row. And you have to like add those together. And then the third row might be the minutes. And then you can if you can do math, you know what time it is. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a real productive use of your time. Boy, that's ironic. Ha! Ah. Now, Wired Magazine also points out that clock could easily refer instead to a method devised by Polish mathematicians and cryptologists during World War II to crack the Enigma ciphers. And it's interesting that this clue was given to us, this clock clue was given to us during the release of The Imitation Game in theaters, which that movie was about Alan Turing's work on the Enigma. So... It seems very coincidental that those things wouldn't be connected. I mean, the Enigma cipher is pretty much like the biggest cipher Cody type thing that I can think of. And then, the, I mean, it seems weird that it wouldn't be connected. I'm just saying. You Okay, you're looking at me like I'm over-explaining. Okay, so last <laughs> year, Sanborn publicly announced the third, and he says, the final clue... And he was doing an interview with NPR, and the interviewer said, okay, so it's the 30th anniversary, and what is the new clue? And he said, the new clue is the word Northeast. In August of 2020, Sanborn revealed that the four letters in positions 22 through 25 ciphertext, F-L-R-V, which to me make me think Flavortown, but <laughs> it might, sure. might just be because I have a huge crush on Guy Fieri. Uh, but that translates to E-A-S-T. Okay. So when commenting in 2006 about his error in Passage 2, Sanborn said that the answers to the three first passages contain clues to the fourth passage. Okay. So we've got the the Tutankhamen thing, and then we've got the Langley thing, and then we've got the absence of light and nuance illusion thing. So how does this all come together? My answer is, uh. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I keep that on standby for emergency use. I really appreciate you. That's not a problem. So it's been said that only two other people, aside from Sanborn, were supposed to know the solution to the cryptos. And one was the retired chairman of the CIA's cryptographic center, uh, Ed the guy who helped him Mm -hmm. create the code. And the other was William Webster, the CIA director who received a sealed envelope containing the solution at the sculpture's dedication. In 2005, Sanborn said, yeah, um, uh, I didn't really give them the solution. So... He gave him a false solution? Yeah. Oh, he's messing with the CIA. Yeah. You don't do that to William Webster. Is that his name? Yes. Okay. I think if you are an artist, you can. That's oh. just, <laughs> okay. It's art. He does say that there is someone other than himself who does know the actual meaning behind it and what the answer to all of it is. Uh, but we don't know who that is. And um, I don't, I don't, I am not close to figuring this out. Although it is my guess that you're going to spend your waking hours for the next two weeks trying to crack the code because you take these things personally. 
Um, the thing is, like, I also have an ability to understand when something's over my head mm. and this be. <laughs> <laughs> so if somebody cracks this code, do they win a prize? Um, I mean, not like a physical prize. It's There's just no... they're the people that crack the code. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you, probably you're going to get a job, right? That's the way a TV show would work. I suppose. Like, you'd be hired to work in the fringe division or something. Yeah, with Walter. And his LSD. Yeah. Man, Somebody... did we get grilled for that? Yeah, we did. My story about Bicycle Day. We, I don't know how many messages and emails we got. How could JG talk about LSD and not mention Walter from Fringe? No one mentioned Walter, and I apologize. And for that, uh, we owe you a strawberry milkshake. It's funny because... In describing Hoffman's experiments, I was picturing Walter from Fringe. The thing is, like, I almost said something a couple of times, but I interrupt you a lot. So I was <laughs> like, maybe it's too much. Maybe he's going to divorce you. you know? Is that where your mind so, goes immediately? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. No. I'm the guy who leaves paper bags around the house so you think they're dogs. <laughs> is that the kind of guy who's going to leave you for, for your interrupting me about Walter from Fringe? No. The answer would be no. Asterix. And now, that thing in the middle. Have you ever wondered why eggplants are called eggplants when they clearly don't look like eggs? Well, 500 years ago, they did. Due to centuries of genetic modification and selective breeding, they took on their oblong shape and purple color. We've written these liners when we're buzzed on cocktails and when we've been sober as a Supreme Court justice. Guess which one we are right now. This is The Box of Oddities. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, 
and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances i sit down with nerd wallets team of nerds personal finance experts in credit cards banking investing and more we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Kaylin sent us an email to curator at theboxofoddities.com. I got a tarantula several months ago to get over my arachnophobia, and oh, did it work. I am now up to 30 tarantulas. Oh, wow. my goodness. Yesterday, I went into my office where I keep 12 of them. I was on conference calls most of the day, and the tarantulas were all in their little hides like normal. After my last call, I turned on the box of oddities to listen when I was tidying up my office. As soon as they heard it, they were plastered to the front of their enclosures like, feed me, because they hear it whenever they are fed. They were just fed the other day, so I knew they weren't hungry, which means I am now a kinder version of Pavlov. And have effectively trained my tarantulas to come out to eat at the sound of the box of oddities. That's amazing. Well done, Caitlin. That's wonderful. Well done. We have a similar issue where anytime we open the refrigerator door, the guinea pigs like, wink, 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 wink. No, I know. Or any cellophane uh, oh crinklings. Gosh, like, yes. oh, you're opening lettuce, feed me. It's not as paper towels. God, relax. So today I'm going to tell you about the Bundy Boys. In the 1930s and into the early 40s, on Bundy Avenue, just north of Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, behind a row of hedges, stood a small Tudor-style lodge. Not really a lodge, it was more of a cottage. It was a caretaker's cabin. 
At the height of Hollywood's golden age, it was kind of a hangout for some of the rich and famous. Uh, they called themselves the Bundy Boys because it was on Bundy Avenue, but they also referred to themselves as the over-the-hill scallywags. <laughs> okay. Was, was Al Bundy one of them? No, Al Bundy was not one of them. Okay. When a person would approach the cottage, they could tell immediately that uh, pranks and devilish behavior took place in there. I love pranks and devilish behavior. In front of the building was a heavy wooden door and above a brass lion's head door knocker was what appeared to be a family crest but it wasn't a family crest if you looked at it it was two unicorns carved into it but if you looked closer the motto underneath of it said useless insignificant poetic <laughs> this was the hangout for the bundy drive boys now, the cottage's resident at the time was a guy named John Decker. He was an artist that had a very shady background. And if one dives into his biography, you would be confronted with quite a trail of mystery and intrigue. He used to paint. Uh, he would combine images of the Hollywood elites with famous historical figures. Probably his most famous, you might recognize it, is the painting of W.C. Fields as Queen Victoria. Have you ever seen that? I don't think so. The original, I think, hung in uh, Chasen's restaurant for like decades, but it's it's pretty well known. Decker played the kingpin to this band of over-the-hill scallywag boys. Um, along with Decker, the group consisted of actors W.C. Fields. Oh, hey. John Barrymore. Errol Flynn. Was John Barrymore Drew Barrymore's grandfather? Yes. Okay. Yes. Journalist Gene Fowler and art critic Sadakichi Hartman. At this time, even though most of the, these people were, well, they were famous around the world for the most part, but they were quickly approaching the end of their careers. It, they were getting a little long in the tooth, as they say. Okay. So they weren't working all the time by this point. They occupied their time by hanging out at Decker's cottage, or it became their clubhouse. And it would they would partake in activities from epic drinking bouts that would last for days oh, to impromptu Shakespeare stagings. They would get really hammered on scotch and then put on plays for each other. According to Fowler's 1954 memoir, Minutes of the Last Meeting, a book that he wrote about his, his drinking buddies, he said, quote, that brown-beamed studio was a place of meeting for still-lively survivors of the Bohemian times. Mm -hmm. An artist's Alamo, where political bores never intruded, and where breast-beating hypocrites could find no listeners. These men lived intensely, as do children, poets, and jaguars. What? <laughs> the Bundy Boy's antics led to a number of incidents involving, well, extreme inebriation in public, and some brushes with the law. A good example... Well, extreme inebriation often does. Yeah. A good example of this was when Decker opened his West Hollywood art gallery in the mid-40s. The event quickly spiraled downward into a drunken brawl that had to be dispersed by the LAPD. They were... It, it seemed like whenever there was a drunken brawl, these guys were involved. <laughs> W.C. Fields' grandson, Ronald Fields, wrote a couple of biographies on his, on his grandfather, and he said, quote... I don't mean to minimize the Rat Pack, but the Bundy Boys was very different from them. These guys had such a depth in artistry. They probably, in the long run, squandered their great talents by drinking and having fun. But, then again, they just didn't take themselves seriously. 
They pretty much felt, as W.C. said in one of his movies, life's a funny thing. You're lucky to get out of it alive. (laughs) Get out of here, kid. You bother me. So these aging movie stars and Hollywood elite knew that they had seen their better days as far as careers had gone, so they filled their days and nights mostly with uh, marathon drinking bouts and always in the little cottage of Deckers. So their partying went on for many years, occasionally spilling out into the community, causing a ruckus, and their infamous antics increased as time went on and would ultimately lead to one of the most outrageous stories to ever come from the golden age of Hollywood. Here's what happened. In 1942, John Barrymore died. Oh. Now, the story goes that the surviving members of the Bundy Boys decided it'd be a good idea to have one less drink with their recently deceased cohort. Wait, did they do like a weekend at Bernie's type thing? Yep. Oh, no. Several of them went to the morgue where they stole Barrymore's body. They did not. And took it to Flynn's house and proceeded to have a little celebration with him. Now, there are those who say that That's just a story, but there are many versions of people who claim to have been there that indicate otherwise. There are several versions of what happened. The earliest written reference is from Errol Flynn's memoir, My Wicked, Wicked Ways, that was written in 1959. In his version, the director Raoul Walsh and two friends talked the caretaker into letting them borrow the body for an hour, telling them that Barrymore's old aunt, who lived in in the household, wanted a final look at her beloved nephew. And they gave him 200 bucks, which probably was. (laughs) And then they brought Barrymore's body to Flynn's house, propped him up in Flynn's favorite chair, and then waited for the unsuspecting actor to return from the bar. Flynn said, quote, The lights went on, and oh my God, I stared into the face of Barrymore. His eyes were closed. He looked puffy, white, bloodless. He hadn't been embalmed yet. I let out a delirious scream. Flynn said he got as far as the front porch before Walsh and the others caught up to him and said, no, this is just a joke. It's a prank. They returned Barrymore to the funeral parlor. Flynn went back to his house and spent the entire night shaking and completely sobered up by (laughs) by the prank. He said... It was no way to remember the passing of his friend John Barrymore. Errol Flynn, by the way, William Shatner's favorite Robin Hood. Just saying. Interesting side note. Thank you. Now, Walsh, for his part, wrote in his memoir in 1974, he told his side of the story. He claimed he enlisted the drunk butler that worked for Flynn to help him carry the corpse and prop him up in a corner on a sofa. The butler said... I've never seen Mr. Barrymore so drunk. Looks like he might be dead. Flynn wandered into the room, seeing the body, ran out, hid behind some bushes, and shouted that they'd all end up in San Quentin for the prank. Now I can't get the Alan Jackson song, Prop Me Up Beside the Jukebox, Jukebox. Yeah. <laughs> to my head. Oh, but I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go with John Barrymore. Walsh then claimed in his memoir that he told The Undertaker that Barrymore had been to visit Flynn. The Undertaker said, quote, Why, if I'd known you were going to take him up there, I would have put a better suit on him. (laughs) Now, like I said, there are those who say that this never happened. Right. 
One version of what happened to Barrymore comes from Gene Fowler, son of Will Fowler, who claims that he and his dad sat beside Barrymore's body for the entire night. He claims that it was not whisked off by Walsh or anyone else for that matter. He said the only one during the evening that came to visit the body was uh, an old prostitute that everybody knew. It seems to me that it is... um A lot more sad if nobody else came to visit him. Mm. So for decades, this has been one of Hollywood's darkest rumors. Many swear that it's true. Some say the account sounds like something that these guys would have made up as a prank. That itself was the prank that, yeah, we stole John's body and we (laughs) drank whiskey at the poker table. Because that's how they all talked back then. Yep. It's just the kind of thing that these guys would do. Others are not so sure. Recently... On the YouTube show Hot Ones, host Sean Evans had uh, Drew Barrymore on, John Barrymore's granddaughter, as you pointed out. And he asked her, quote, is it true that your grandfather's body was stolen from the morgue by W.C. Fields and Errol Flynn so that they could prop him up against a poker table and throw one last party with this guy? Drew answered, not only yes... But there have been cinematic interpretations of that. There was a Blake Edwards film called SOB. She says, that's just brilliant and fun to watch. Evans then asked Drew if her grandfather's postmortem festivities had in, had in any way inspired Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> she replied, quote, I've heard things, but I can't know ever if that's even true. It's ironic that it was on a show called Hot Ones. Because he was a cold one. Exactly. Uh, During the height of the Bundy boys carousing, they would often end their festivities with a poem. And (laughs) that sounds like so much. That sounds so much like something that my siblings would do, right? Like do something insane and then write a haiku about it. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a dead poet society kind of vibe to it. Um, They would close with a poem that was written by Gene Fowler. And so I'm going to close this segment with that poem. Oh, okay. It's called The Testament of a Dying Ham by Gene Fowler. This is how they would close their drunken debauchery ceremonies. It was their favorite poem. I leave them the curse of the dying. I leave them their own fetid crowd. I leave them the voices at midnight. I leave them the hope of a shroud. I leave them the groans of the fallen. I leave them the culture of swine. All these but another bear witness, good brother. I leave them the fate that was mine. My source material came from the Los Angeles Times Mm -hmm. and from Mental Floss. The Bundy Boys. was delightful. In my mind, there's no doubt they took his body. Of course not, because you want it to be true. Wouldn't that be cool? (laughs) I love the idea that they are compared to the Rat Pack, but it's like these are like the band geeks and the Rat Pack is like the pop group, you yeah, know? Right. Like- they're, they're the cool ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, even though he'd only been dead for a few hours, he hadn't been embalmed, you know? Yeah. If you're to believe the story, they kept him there all night before they took him back. Mm-hmm. That is not the party atmosphere that I look for. <laughs> Ow, you're just being a prude. (laughs) (laughs) I want to take a a second to thank you guys who have recently signed up for Patreon. Oh, my goodness. We do appreciate that, supporting the podcast. Uh, By doing that, you get lots of really cool stuff like 
ad-free episodes, you get them a day early, bonus episodes, all kinds of stuff. We, we give out our home phone number. And if you would like to take advantage of all those extra goodies, become a member of the Order of Freaks, sign up at Patreon. Just go to our website, theboxofoddities.com, and everything you ever need to know about us is there. Also, big thanks to Distractify for an incredible article about us, which is weird and makes me uncomfortable. It was nice, though, right? It was really nice. Cat's uncomfortable with <laughs> when people say nice things. Um, yeah, no, it was a great article. Uh, Distractify. They, I was reading somewhere that they, they have like 20 million viewers or readers or it's a lot. Anyway, we really appreciate them doing a, an article about us. And you were particularly thrilled because they mentioned us in the same sentence as my favorite murder. Right. I mean, that's not bad company. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Cat's all red now, so I'm going to say goodbye. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, Women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.